I want to introduce Amy Catterson to you. We were reflecting on the fact that Amy hasn't been up here teaching since a year ago, last summer. So some of you know Amy from her previous teachings with us in other uh, Bible studies, but it's been almost a year. So we are delighted that Amy is here. I consider Amy to be a dear friend of mine. She is a homeschooling mom of four very active, handsome boys, ages 5, 7, 9, and 11. Imagine how busy her household is. They moved this summer, and I can't forget to tell you that she also has a beautiful little, little girl, Jemima, who is two. So she is your assistant homeschool teacher, I imagine. Absolutely. Full yeah. Time. Ah, full time, yes. <laughs> well, Amy is married to Ben, who is our middle school pastor here at the North Church. And Amy also co-leads our Wednesday evening discussion group. So during connection on Wednesday nights during the school year, there is a room full of ladies like you are here discussing your lesson, and they don't have the opportunity to hear any live teaching like this that we do on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. So that's one reason why we record audio and video is so that those ladies on Wednesday night, plus anybody else who's absent, could, could hear. So Amy is one of the most efficient and hardworking women I think I know. She's so organized and efficient. And actually, are you still on staff? Yeah. She's still on staff here at the North Church. And a tiny little bit. Amy is super, super organized in her brain as well. So she helps with like database kind of stuff. She's really good with computers and systems and that kind of thing. So, well, Amy loves the Bible and she loves to share what she's learning. And so I know you will enjoy hearing what Amy has to say about work. And so I would like to pray for Amy before she starts. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to hear from Amy tonight. Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit, your grace, your power on Amy now. Lord, I pray that you would help her to think clearly, and most of all, that she would honor you and just help us to listen, help our hearts to hear what she has to share for us from the book of Proverbs and from your word. And thank you that her greatest joy is pointing us to Jesus as well. So Lord, would you be honored and glorified tonight in and among us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. What a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us tonight. And my main point this evening is this. Work is a gift from God invested in faith to bear enduring fruit. As we have been learning throughout this Bible study, as well as from our Proverbs sermon series in the spring, the book of Proverbs offers us jewels of wisdom from the creator of the universe. As Raymond Ortland defines it, wisdom is skill at living life well. And wisdom takes the long view to live a life that leaves no regrets. Because our hearts are contaminated by sin and because the world has rejected the ways of God and because we have a relentless and energetic enemy, we need the defense and illumination of the word of God to set and to reset our heart's trajectory. So let me pray again and we will dive in. 
Father, you are the great worker who has begun a good work in us and who will carry it on to completion. Thank you for the gift of work as we image you in our daily lives. And I pray, Father, that now you in your spirit would come and stir our hearts to rejoice in the work that you have given us and to serve faithfully in the strength that you supply so that you would be honored and glorified. Please be with us now, Father, and help us to hear from you and to rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. To consider the wisdom of Proverbs on the subject of work, we will talk through four main points, and you can find those on your outline worksheet. One, the paradigm for wise work. Two, principles for wise work. Three, paragon of wise work. And four, practicing wise work. So let's start. Point one, the paradigm for wise work. The Bible, and the book of Proverbs specifically, has much to say about work. But wonderfully enough, the first description of work in Proverbs portrays God himself as the epitome and source of wisdom at work. This is Proverbs 8, 27 through 31. When the Lord established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. If you recall, this spring, when Andy Nacelli preached on this text, he clarified that in the context of the book of Proverbs, these words describe wisdom personified. And in the context of the whole Bible, Proverbs 8 prophetically pictures Jesus, God's Son, by whom all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And what do we learn about work through this passage? I want to draw your attention to a key idea at the end of this passage, which repeats a theme four times in just a verse and a half. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Delighting, rejoicing, rejoicing, delighting. For now, this is the main point I want to draw from this passage. God's wisdom at work is characterized by deep joy. Now, let's see if we can take one more step to frame out a paradigm for work by looking at a related passage describing God's creation found in Genesis 1. Adam and Eve receive a blessing and a commission in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These verses are followed by a description of another blessing that God provides, the paradigm of Sabbath rest. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. For now, notice three things about this brief passage. One, man and woman bear the image of God. Two, God's blessing on Adam and Eve is immediately followed by his commission to reflect his example through work. Three, this blessing and commission occur before Adam and Eve fall in sin. So I would summarize the paradigm for work like this. God created people to work as a good gift and reflection of his image even before the fall. Point two, principles for wise work. With that beautiful backdrop, let's turn again to Proverbs to glean four principles of wise work. These are principles that shape how we may reflect God's image in our work and where we must guard against sinful foolishness in work. And as I move through these points, you can follow along with some of the chief texts in your workbook starting on page 60. Principle one, shun sluggardness slothfulness, and empty talk. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, a cursory look at social media, billboards, magazine ads will reveal that the world has a totally contrary view of work to these verses. What is every woman's biggest problem? The world would say, you work too hard and are too undervalued. And what is the solution you are called upon to employ? The world would say, indulge yourself. The ads may frame it in a thousand different pictures, but the bottom line is the same. Your savior from this tyranny of work is to treat yourself to some instant gratification. But let's test that worldly gospel against the words in these verses. 
The person addressed here in Proverbs 6 is a sluggard. Not a very flattering term, which means a lazy, sluggish person, according to the Oxford Dictionary. And you can read more lively descriptions of the sluggard throughout Proverbs. We are probably safe to assume that we might all fall into that category without a renewed mind and heart. And we are called to assess the example of an ant. Now, we might not be very flattered that in this wee bug is our instructor. But if you take the opportunity to observe some ants, hopefully in the great outdoors and not an invasion in your kitchen, you will notice this. If you see an ant sitting still, it's probably dead. They are ceaselessly working. But according to this passage, we are not prompted merely toward frenetic activity. Go, go, go. Rather, we are to wisely steward our time and resources to prepare for approaching needs. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Further, what kind of motivation do ants require? Is there a boss, supervisor, or a looming deadline requiring such diligence? No, for she works without having any chief officer or ruler. We are called to reflect work that springs from an inner supply rendered even without external compulsion or supervision. God is aware that this kind of inner drive is no longer our native state. So he also provides a strong incentive for pressing in to industrious labor. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. What do we find on the other side of foolish self-indulgence? Not the dreamy, relaxed state of bliss that the ad depicts, but something far more alarming. Want and poverty that overpower like a bandit. How are we to understand that warning? We may live in a day where the margin between daily work and daily sustenance feels a little thicker, where poverty seems less threatening. But the principle remains that our activity in the present will reap fruit in the future. And if we neglect our duties, the outcome will be harder and sadder than we expect. Let's learn from the ant. Principle two, influence, opportunity, and provision come through diligence. What is diligence? My working definition is to apply persistent, attentive, and energetic effort toward a goal. Let me read a series of texts that reflect the significance of diligence 
in our work. Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. It's interesting that these verses don't speak to the content of the work, but only the attitude of the worker, whether diligent or slothful. I take that to mean that a disposition of diligence is far more significant to the trajectory of our life than the specific sphere in which we work. Every woman here has a different context for her daily work. But where you labor is not the chief factor in the fruitfulness of your work. Whether you are like Ruth, laboring alone in a barley field, or like the Old Testament Joseph, unjustly treated and serving in a place where you'll never get affirmation or promotion for your efforts. You can express trust in God through diligent labor where you are. The term fruitfulness helps us to see how God has fashioned the world to reflect his own character. Diligence in work is like planting a little seed in the ground, a seed of faith that our labor is worth more than we see today. Why should I wipe my kitchen counters every night when they are destined for sticky messes immediately upon anyone coming into the kitchen in the morning? Why do you care about the corners and crevices of your work where no one is ever going to commend your attentiveness or give you a bonus for being exceptional? It is because of God's principle of small faithfulness, bearing future fruit. The seed of faith planted in diligence looks forward to the one who sees, who provides, and who loves to reward hidden faithfulness. You remember this principle laid out in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Principle three. Godly work is imaginative, fruitful, messy, timely, and wholehearted. You might think that this is a tricky way to cram multiple principles into one. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> but let's observe these aspects of godly work as we look at four verses. Godly work is imaginative. Proverbs 31:16. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. 
Godly work is fueled by creative, hope-filled vision of what may be. The Proverbs 31 woman demonstrates this. She looks at a field, perhaps barren and rock-filled, and considers, what could this be cultivated into? She's not daunted by the scope of work that would be required. Her own hands are instruments of transformation. Where can you employ your imagination in your work? How could some simple, raw ingredients be turned into something nourishing or beautiful? How could you infuse a repetitive, tedious task with joy and prayer? Where can you be an instrument of transformation? Godly work involves fruitful mess. Proverbs 14.4 Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. If you are involved in work of some magnitude, whether it be raising children, investing in relationships, or laboring at another job God has given you, mess will be a part of the process toward fruit. One portion of exercising our dominion will be putting things back into order. But as one commentator astutely put it, we should foster a farmer's outlook rather than a curator's. In other words, remember, we labor in something that is more like a growing garden than a pristine museum. Godly work is timely. Proverbs 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Timing affects fruit. Failing to plow at the right time will have specific and major consequences. This illustrates that one of the chief temptations we may face is to procrastinate. In other words, to delay in doing the right thing. James 4.17 challenges us with this strong word. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This principle may stir us to the wise investment of planning so that we may make good priorities to guide our plans. And it may also stir us to frequently pepper our day with a quiet prayer, Lord, help me to see the best thing to do right now. Godly work is wholehearted. Proverbs 18, 9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. If you have ever experienced the impact of slackness in work, perhaps waiting in an endless line for customer service, or trying to place a complicated order at a fast food joint, or looking for help at an understaffed airport, you know the truth of this verse. But consider the astounding contrast 
of how exquisitely God attends to details and invests in every aspect of his handiwork. The perfect design of a spider web. The miraculous little factory of photosynthesis in a blade of grass. The incredible scientific properties of a water droplet. So as we image him in our work, we are called to work that is not half-hearted or shoddy or leaning on other people to pick up the slack. And this kind of work will stand out in a culture that is increasingly inclined to cut corners and exert the least possible effort in their duties. Principle four. A woman's wise work will build her home. Proverbs 14.1 The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Don't you love this powerful image? This verse provides a compelling picture of the influence of a woman's wisdom employed at home. But it also offers a striking word of caution. Our hands, employed in folly and selfishness, have the ability to wreck a home, to render it neither a shelter nor a place of joyful, productive fruitfulness. But on the other hand, if womanly wisdom is rightly invested, the result will be a home endowed and reinforced with strength, fruitfulness, and peace. Reflecting on these principles for wise work, we may find ourselves inspired. But the truth is, as we study God's call for our work, we also find ourselves indicted. For not one of us has been a consistently and fully wise worker. As George Grant writes in his helpful book, Bringing in the Sheaves, the fall has disrupted and obstructed the blessings of work. Man cannot and will not work as he should. Sin blinds and binds us so that our divine commission is left unfulfilled. In a very real sense, everything that the Bible teaches about the benefits of work can stand only as condemnation to fallen man. So Proverbs not only casts a beautiful vision for wise work, but it stirs a longing for someone who could fill up this picture, someone who would be the perfect worker where we fall short. And that brings us to point three, the paragon of wise work. From the very beginning of his life, Jesus understood that he had a job to do. When he was just a 12-year-old boy, his parents lost him for three days in Jerusalem. And they finally found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
his parents assumed Jesus would be running around with friends, as anyone with a 12-year-old boy could understand. But Jesus told them, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Luke 2, 49. He was already seeking out the voice of his father. As Jesus' ministry launched, he kept surprising people by his unexpected agenda. When his disciples wanted him to stop for a lunch break, he told them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 4, 34. When the authorities got angry at him for not keeping their notion of the Sabbath, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. John 5, 17. In fact, Jesus revolutionized the entire idea of work for those who wanted to produce something that would please God. He told them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 6, 29. After filling up his earthly ministry with days that perfectly accomplished the Father's will, Christ completed his work. He fulfilled, literally filled up, the promises and prophecies of God to become our salvation. He stretched out his arms on the cross to be pierced for our transgressions. And when he had done all that we needed, he declared, it is finished, and yielded his spirit. John 19.30 Hebrews 10.12-14 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The reverberations of Christ's work echo even into this present day as we walk in the new life he purchased for us. Because of Christ, we are invited into a great exchange. His death, pain for our sin. His work, becoming our rest. Hebrews 4, 3 and 4 tells us that we who have believed enter that rest, as God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And Hebrews 4.10 says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. This is true rest of heart, because Christ has satisfied every demand of God on our behalf. But let's not misunderstand. 
This doesn't mean that we now drift on the lazy river of life until we reach glory. On the contrary, Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Our full rest in Christ draws us into a deeper, wider, and longer vision for fruitful, spirit-empowered labor. As Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we are enabled for this fruitful labor, the way Paul describes in Colossians, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. So that brings us to point four, practicing wise work. Where do we start as workers in Christ seeking to honor him with our service? Colossians 3, 23 and 24 gives a sweeping scope for us. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We start with our vision and see Christ himself as the one we work for. What kind of work is included? Whatever you do. This theme is repeated in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The most mundane tasks of changing diapers or folding clothes are ennobled with this call that they be to the glory of God. We seek to labor faithfully where God has placed us with a holy ambition that Christ be honored and enjoyed in all of life. To get very practical, how will this wise work look in your life? I encourage you to think about each specific calling or vocation that God has given you. The principles of wise work that we reviewed from Proverbs may find expression in every area. As a follower of Christ, how can you use your unique spirit-given gifts to build up the church and spread the gospel? What clear biblical instructions do you need to obey in faith? As a woman, how can you steward your unique community-building and culture-building gifts that God has given you? What is one way that you can use your hands to build your own home, as Proverbs 14.1 alludes, no matter how many people are living in your home? Consider your other vocations. Are you a wife and mother? Where can you employ creative and generous service for the blessing of your people? 
Are you an employee or neighbor? How can the love of Christ be made manifest in your time and energy? As a daughter or sister or friend, where do you see God opening a door for abounding in the work of the Lord? How can you grow in excellence or industry? And what temptations are especially prevalent in your work? Where does sluggishness or sloth tug at you? Do you slide into time wasters when you know something hard should be done? These are thoughts that we can consider and discuss together in our time. To repeat the main point I began with, work is a gift from God, invested in faith to bear enduring fruit. I pray that the Lord will use our time discussing and praying together now to ignite deep joy as we seek to work with wisdom in him. So let's pray. Father, how rich you have made our lives with abilities, with callings, with the vision of service that Christ has laid out, and how rich we are that the fullest extent of work is completed for our salvation and our eternal rest. I pray, Father, for these women as we think and talk and pray together that you will touch our hearts with the gift of your grace as we consider how we may employ our service for your honor and glory. Would you come and would you be lifted up in this time? In Jesus' name, amen.